My name is Tom Samuel, and I serve Redeemer as an elder. When Dave Furman, our pastor, asked me to consider a text to preach, I thought of several, but it narrowed down to Psalm 93 because it was just five verses. But as, as I was preparing, I realized it's much more than five verses because it is so amazing what God was speaking through that psalm. And uh, so my sermon is a two-part sermon. The first part was last Friday when Godly preached. Why? Because he kind of touched on God's reign and rule over this world, something that Psalm 93 this morning emphasizes as well. Godly, thankful for you, thankful for your ministry to Redeemer. But before we get any further, let us pray one more time that God would engage us through his word. Father, I want to thank you for this morning and for your word, Lord, for the time that we have had so far to consider who you are, Lord who reigns, the Lord who delights over his people, and that we find joy in you. I pray, Father, that this morning your truth will engage us and that we would listen to who you are and what you speak of yourself. And I pray, Father, that the words that I speak and the utterances I make would align with your text, with your word, and people would hear your voice, Lord. For I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Psalm 93 is one of the few psalms that has no author or title. Some attributed to King David. Others say it was written around 520 B.C. after the Jews returned to Jerusalem from their exile in Babylon. The hearers of this psalm during the Jewish times understood the phrase, the Lord reigns, to mean the appearance of a Messiah who was to come and deliver them. That's why Psalm 93, along with Psalms 47, 96, and 99, were known as enthronement psalms because they were sung in future anticipation of this God's theocratic reign, which they rejected when their nation was first formed by God. By rejecting God's direct rule of the nation, Israel looked for kings to serve. But it turned out that most kings were evil kings. In fact, there were more evil ones than good. Interestingly, on this theme of evil kings, the movie Minions will be released in UAE from tomorrow. The story is of minions who are looking for the most evil master to serve, but find themselves working for unsuccessful masters, from T-Rex to Napoleon, without a good evil master, if there's ever such a thing, to serve, the minions fall into deep depression till, no, I better hold it there. I better leave the story for you people who want to watch the movie. But I can give away this story in Israel's history. What's remarkable to note in their 450-year history, as recorded in 1 and 2 Kings, is this fact. Out of the 42 kings that Israel and Judah had, 31 were evil. Five were kind of good and bad. And six were only good kings. Or putting it another way, 75% of their kings were evil. Evil reigned. It had lifted itself against God, reveal, revealing man's total inability to rule for God. Even King David, who they adored, had flaws. Though he was a good king, he had his share of failures and weaknesses of the flesh. In fact, we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 that God disallows him from building his holy temple because of the many sins that he had committed by his own hand. 
So this psalmist speaks of a king who will be unlike any they had ever seen before and would be nothing less than perfect, glorious, and majestic. He draws a picture of how God's reign will look by enthroning Christ Jesus, who will reign over everything and everyone as the good and eternal messianic king. Now, for those of you taking notes, I've outlined my sermon with two main points. The first one, the Lord's majestic and absolute reign is triumphant. The Lord's majestic and absolute reign is triumphant. And the second point, the Lord's holy reign is in truth. The Lord's holy reign is in truth. Let's look at the first point. The Lord's majestic and absolute reign is triumphant. The psalm breaks into nice, uh, three nice sections. Let's see verse 1 and 2 again. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. As you consider this picture of the Lord and his throne, this psalm simply opens up with a series of six declarations or facts. The first fact we see is this. The Lord reigns. The psalmist declares as a fact that the Lord is king. Now the word Lord mentioned here in capital letters is Yahweh or Jehovah in Hebrew. So this king who is reigning is none other than God and not merely a human being. This is important for us to know because if we also look at our present world, it is quite obvious that right now it is evil and is influenced by Satan who is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2 and the ruler of this world in John 12.31. Further in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the unbeliever follows Satan's agenda. The God of this world has blinded the minds of believers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This is not to say that Satan rules the world completely, for God is still sovereign, and he will over, overrule him at the end. Now let's look at the second fact. He is robed in majesty. He is robed in majesty. Jesus' appearance is not just an illusion or an idea, but the reality of splendor and stateliness not with emblems of majesty, but with majesty itself. Everything which surrounds the Lord is majestic. When Jesus Christ was here on earth, the first time there were glimpses of his majesty. For example, at this transfiguration, Peter, James, and John got a small glimpse of the majesty of Christ. Later, in 2 Peter 1.16, Peter testifies, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And during the coming 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, he will physically be on this earth, reigning in all his majestic glory. Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ will be seen as the infinite and majestic divine king of kings. Yes, he will be robed in majesty. The third fact states that the Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. So see him not only dressed in robes of royalty, but also clad in the armor of success. His garments of glory are not only his attire, 
He also wears strength as his belt. So when Jesus Christ reigns, he'll be, be a reign of absolute power and dominion. This is display of God's full power will be supernatural. Because Jesus Christ girds himself with power, you also see this in verse that he is self-reliant and self-sufficient. Look at those two words, uh, phrases there. He is robed, he has put on. He has the means and the ability to support his greatness and to make it truly formidable. Both strength and honor are his clothing. This proves that he can do anything and nothing is impossible with him. And to the fourth fact that we read here, yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Because the Lord reigns, all that we see in the heavens and nature that God created is stable. He rules over them, and because he has dominion over them, they are subject to him. Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, asked his people, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heaven like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. The whole administration of his gov government was settled from old in his eternal councils way before the world was established. For he does all according to the purpose which he purposed in himself. He keeps them in their places by his power and might because he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And now for the fifth and the sixth facts. We read this in verse 2. Your throne is established from of old, and you are from everlasting. In Revelation 3.21, we read these words that were spoken of Jesus Christ. And by him, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see the words my, his. It is quite evident that God the Father has a throne, and it is also quite evident that God the Son will have a throne. This is the same messianic throne that is spoken of in verse 2. How did that come to be? If you recall, God through Nathan promises King David in 2 Samuel 7.16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before you forever. Your throne will be established forever. Peter, centuries later, preached about this promise in Acts 2. He states that David understood the promise to refer to the Christ who, after his death and resurrection, would sit on the throne and rule from heaven. The throne of David and the throne of the Lord are the one and same throne. Some features of his throne. His throne will not topple or buckle. That is, it will not give way like your Nindaram beach chair would. It is firmly established, and no one can shake it or rob it. His throne and rule is over, also everlasting and encompasses all. Whether we like it or not, whether kings and rulers like it or not, whether angels and demons like it or not. And it will continue when all other rule, principality, and power will be put down. God's right to rule the world is founded in his making it, and therefore his rule and plan is not shakable or contestable. He has established it. 
It is just as what angel Gabriel, Gabriel announced to a confused Mary in Luke 1. He appeared to Mary and said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we see God's wonderful plan unfolding. About 3,000 years ago, when God made this promise to David, the people wondered and waited on its fulfillment. 1,000 years later, after David, Christ came, and they thought that he was going to physically establish this kingdom. Friends, it's important for us to see this. God is faithful to fulfill his words, even if it is going to take a few thousand years for people to make the connection that Jesus Christ is the one who will sit on the throne. His idea of everlasting spans all time and space. We cannot grasp it completely, but we see from Adam's time through to David's lineage and into the Gospels that God intentionally sent Jesus Christ into this earth to herald his kingdom. That is the plan of old. And then we read in Colossians 1, 15 to 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you see that? God triumphantly reveals the everlasting kingdom of truth and holiness, which his son Jesus Christ wishes to establish in people's hearts. And that is what the whole Bible is about. Now the imagery suddenly takes, shifts from adoration and worship to a rather startling and scary encounter with God's might in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Now, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls or been at a sea in a storm or faced a cyclone, you would probably understand what I'm saying here. Having faced all three, I found each of them on its own to be an overwhelming experience. Now, I won't go into the unending debate of which is the better side to watch the falls from. But this I can tell you, I've seen and heard the falls from both sides. You can hardly hear anything other than the great thunderous rush of waters and the noise that it makes while it goes over the cliff. It's such a powerful experience to see nature in its beauty, raw power, and majesty. And Mark Dever, a favorite pastor of mine outside UAE, at CHB Washington, he says this, the symbolic natural comparisons comparing the lesser to the greater helps us to understand the power of God. God's power of waters might help the Jews when they pass through the Red Sea. Also in the New Testament, Jesus rescued Peter from drowning. God was dominant over the elements of the earth. He demonstrates his sovereignty and authority over the predominant elements that cause fear to his people. He shows that he is the reality 
and all others are merely circumstances. So if this interpretation that we see here in verses 3 and 4 is taken allegorically for it to be in context, we often find that the Old Testament compares floods to seas. Its repetitive use here in these two verses strongly suggests the frequency of man's assaults against God. Isaiah in Isaiah 57, 20 picks up on this theme. He compares the wicked to the tempestuous sea, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. So here we see the psalmist has portrayed a scene in which wicked men are raging against God and even terrorizing and frightening the child of God. Psalm 2.1 says the nations rage or noisily assemble. That's the kind of picture that is being drawn here. The nations rumble on like the roaring of many waters. These words, floods, voice, and roaring, are used as metaphors of the Gentile nations that raise its angry head against God and rage against his people. Now, agree with me that this world will not simply submit itself meekly to Jesus Christ when he comes, saying, come, Lord Jesus, would they? No, the nations of the world will not only humbly bow to him, but they will arrogantly defy him. So see what verses 3 and 4 describe will happen when the king comes in power. Five things happen. Five things. First one, the people will lift themselves up against God. Second one, they will lift their voices up against him. Three, the nations will pound against him like huge waves against the rocks. Four, they may cause destruction and harm, but guess what? They can never fully conquer because, five, Christ will prevail over them. He will dominate, he will silence and defeat them. In Psalms 18, verse 4, the psalmist admitted, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. So you see, any child of God can be overwhelmed with doubts, with fears, with circumstances, both by nature and enemies, and even their own weaknesses of the flesh. Have you been there? Let me remind you that we can experience in some small measure such trials and tribulation in this life, giving us glimpses of what a horrible future looks like when enemies rise against God and his people's hearts grow faint and weary. Let me briefly narrate an incident that I and my family went through a few months ago. About three months ago, our business needed cash investments way beyond my ability or capacity. I waited and prayed much. As D-Day approached, we didn't have the money for the payments, and the suppliers were calling. I began to think that God's sense of timing was so bad. I mean, it's a one month now, and where's the money, O oh Lord? That is a question I asked. Many evenings our family gathered together to hear the latest update, to pray, and to consider the next course of action. There was nothing. No action, no plan Bs. We were totally empty-handed. Our backs were against the wall. Those were some tough days. Days when I clutched all kinds of straws 
though telling myself that the Lord reigns. And this psalm kind of came at the right time for me. Other days I felt suffocated and wanted to hide someplace where no supplier would ever reach me. In frustration, I counted my past good deeds that I've done to help others and thought, God, God owes me big time now. You see, I didn't have godly fear of flying that he spoke of last Friday, but I had another one, the fear of walking this earth. And imagine, Jason Beres wasn't there. Then one bright, bright day, God came through for us. A person from a bank suddenly calls up and said he can manage to secure all the money that we needed. I was shocked. Earlier, no banks could do it, but suddenly this, this man could do it. One month ago, we paid our supplies. Come on, I was thinking, shouldn't I have known better that God would come through? No, some of us are just like children when it comes to understanding God. So see some letters here that children wrote to God. Dear God, in school they told us what you do. What is it? Who does it when you are on vacation? Tim wrote that. Dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the ones you have? Jane. Carol wrote, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but I, what I prayed for was a puppy. <laughs> Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made yesterday. That was cool. Pat. Dear God, we read Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school, they said you did it. So I bet he stole your idea, right? Sincerely, Donna. And dear God, this I found very funny. Did you mean for the giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? <laughs> George. We are all on a steep learning curve, aren't we? Whether we are children or adults. Well, I learned something more of God that day. No valley too low can change the truth of who he is. No valley too low can change the truth of who he is. He didn't let go no matter what came away. We also learned that he will prevail in our dark times and his answers and solutions will be in his time. Then I understood a little more what this verse meant, the Lord on high is mighty. He will prevail in his time. Oh friend, where do you go for refuge when the world rages and reviles you? Where do you go to when you are sailed with doubts and fears? What would you like to hear most when things are stacked up against you? When your path of despair sees a glimmer of hope and it quickly vanishes or disappears like a wisp of vapor. Do you think that God has perhaps vacated his throne? Now what assurance does God's child need to believe that the Lord reigns? Well, we read one such assurance here in verse 4. It says, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the seas, the Lord on high is mighty. The Lord on high is mighty. Do you see triumph written all over verse 4? The Lord's majestic and absolute reign is triumphant. No one can displace that. Indeed, there will be the opposition to Jesus Christ until he overthrows it. It will intensify as we that point in time. 
Revelation 17, 14, and 19, 19 describe this moment perfectly. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of, the, Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So Christ will prevail and overrule all opposition against himself and his people. He is indeed strong, triumphant, and will triumph. Let me use another image to help us understand this uh, more easily. Picture a scene of a mother and a young baby. Her little baby starts crying and begins screaming. A redeemer, we like to say that the baby is having a bad day. Well, no one knows why. The baby is upset, but its mother in a moment picks up the baby, carries the baby close to her bosom, and the baby stops crying. The baby calms down, and everything it seems is back to normal in the baby's world. Our Lord Jesus was asleep in a pillow in a little boat during a violent storm. When his disciples were overcome with fear, they too had a bad day. They woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Mark 4.39 records that Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And then the wind died down and became perfect calm. If he can calm the wind and the waves, can he not calm our hearts and minds? If he can rule over nature triumphantly and overcome his enemies, can he not deal with your enemies and circumstances triumphantly? The answer, of course, is yes. This is what verse 4 seems to emphasize, that all is now restored as things should be. Mightier than the thunder, thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Just as the mother has prevailed, Jesus, our Lord, has prevailed. He has quietened the noise and the waves. He has triumphed. What peace and comfort. When the, there is calamity all around, chaos and violence, his rule is never threatened. He overcomes and is dominant over all. He's mighty to triumphantly save and keep. All is now well in the Christian's world in the midst of the storm because he has entered into God's refuge where he's enveloped in God's truth. The point that needs to be made here is that nothing in this world can disturb God's rest or rule. Nothing can defeat his designs or purposes. Our most powerful force and nothing more to him than the noise of many waters. Christ is mightier than the noise which frequently troubles and robs us of peace. After all, he is the one who can, according to Psalm 65, still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Do you see this? God's people are a satisfied lot. Why? Because they are in God's house where his dwelling is adorned in his holiness. Which brings me to my second point. The Lord's holy reign is in truth. The Lord's holy reign is in truth. Verse 5. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So from God's 
majestic and perfect reign over creation and dominion over nature and the rebellious, verse 5 shifts to his reign established by his trustworthy decrees or commands. It seems to be a logical extension of who he is. His decrees match his reign in stability as they are very sure or settled. Isn't that true? Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in heaven. That is, settled in heaven. Then in Psalm 119, verse 152, Long ago I learned from your statutes that they, you established them to last forever. That you established them to last forever. His decrees confirm the sovereign throne of the Lord. His decrees say that independent of your circumstances, the Lord reigns. Nothing can change that. Because divine truth does not depend upon the latest fads of people or the opinions of men and science or the storms of political and human controversy. God's word is sure. But notice what the psalmist says. It is not just trustworthy, it is very trustworthy. It's 100%. We can count upon his word through all. In Psalm 19, he said, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In Ephesians 1.11, that he works all things after the counsel of his will. We can rely on his word. He promises safety and keeps his promises. He says you are secure from harm. So what should our response to his trustworthiness be? The psalmist puts the proper words into our mouths. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Holiness befits your house forevermore, Lord. In the midst of all that turmoil, we can be still and know that the house is holy. It's characterized by holiness. Holiness becomes God's house. It is his habitation. He rests in it. My friends, it is the holiness of this church that God is most attracted to because he has adorned her with it. So no matter what the noise, the rumblings, and the rows are, Christ is her rock and shield. He is stronger than the power of sin. He has broken sin's chains when he prevailed over them on the cross of Calvary. And he will continue fighting for her by fighting against sins, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. Listen, he has more at stake than what we can ever imagine. He will fight for his own honor and glory. The Bible says that he's a jealous God. He has established his church, and so he will secure her against the many waters of our enemies and their sometimes frightening noise. Redeemer Church, do you believe this? So whether you are a member of this church or a Christian visiting us this morning, this church is likened to God's house. The house of God is not this building or hall. It is you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, living stones that make up this holy church that God has established, and we are his members. She's cleansed from sin, consecrated by God, and she will be used by God to beautify his name in Dubai and to go forth into the nations where all kinds of people will be gathered as a praise to our everlasting God. The rest will be consigned 
to judgment and wrath, also to the praise of our God. No one can rob God of His glory, His righteousness, and holiness. What an amazing king he'll be. What an amazing reign he'll have. What a glorious time it will be when the sovereign, majestic king of kings is reigning on this earth. His reign will be one of total righteousness. Friends, he's the one and only eternal dynasty. His house is holiness. How do we know this? God's truth in his word is trustworthy and they declare it so. We looked at some truths here, but we need to apply them. So let's take those two points that I mentioned and highlight three important applications. Three important applications. The first one, the Lord's majestic and absolute reign is a source of joy. The Lord's majestic and absolute reign is a source of joy. This knowledge of his future reign therefore applies to difficult circumstances that you and I may be facing right now. They may be major, such as a life-threatening disease, or they may be relatively minor, such as waiting for a lift that never comes in time, and when it does, it's always full. If you only will wait long enough to acknowledge that the Lord reigns over these problems, you will know that these things do not happen by accident, but rather by the loving care of the God who will work these things together for your good to conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. But not stopping to acknowledge that the Lord reigns over these circumstances can result in depression or anxiety or even anger. This is not to your good. So the truth, so the truth that the Lord reigns is a source of joy and be cause for rejoicing. That's the first application. I want to leave some questions on that application. How does this rain look like in your life this morning? Is your life marked by joy even when things are not how they ought to be in your life? The second application. The Lord's triumphant rain comforts our troubled hearts. The Lord's triumphant reign comforts our troubled hearts. God's absolute sovereignty over everything, whether our salvation or evil people or difficult trials, should not be a cause of stumbling. We therefore need not fear the onslaught of earthly armies. We need not fear as believers the might of men, whether it be personal, relational, political, professional, or ecclesiastical. Feeble as we are, we need fear nothing, for this reigning Lord is our God. He's triumphant. My recent experience through struggle made me rethink what we normally tell each other in words of encouragement. Hold on to God's hand. Have you heard that? Hold on to the Lord's hand. I kept thinking about this and uh, thought to myself, I'm holding on to God's hand with my strength, which is feeble, how strong is that? And I then realized that that's not right. God should be holding on to our hands. That is right. Because he's strong. His uh, grip is firm. So I want you to think about that a moment. Who is holding whose hand? It's a little nu nuance. 
Are you holding his or is God holding yours? Whose is a firmer and a surer grip? Yours or his? Remember, when he holds you, he will never let go. When he holds you, he'll never let go. That's why he came to earth, to hold us firmly and pull us out of hellfire and terror that awaits all who reject his salvation and reign. He plucks us out with his firm grip. Which brings me to the third application. The Lord's holy reign saves people by the truth. The Lord's holy reign saves people by the truth. For when Jesus Christ came to this earth, it pleased him to come as God incarnate, meaning God in the flesh. The Lord who reigns came to die for sinners who could never make themselves right with God. On the cross of Calvary, he took up our sins and bore the full wrath of God that was due to us. He died and three days later, he rose up again by the power of God to sit at the right hand of his father on that throne. Let's face it. A sinner cannot be a holy person until he has experienced God's saving grace. For he is under God's judgment and eternal separation, which leads to death and hell. The Bible plainly states of God, Psalm 5, You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Truth be told, we cannot even imagine that dreadful and terrible day of the Lord when this Lord Jesus Christ will judge all sin and rebellion. But today, once again, Jesus Christ offers mercy and by grace offers you a life in him far away from his judgment and eternal separation that leads to death and hell. Nothing can change these truths that I just mentioned. But one thing can change in your life this morning. Your life in eternity with Christ Jesus can begin today. Even now, if you will repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Christ Jesus to save you from your sins, He will do what He has promised. God is more than able to save you and bring you into His holy house. And there you reign with Him forevermore. Will you let Him save you today? May the Lord's reign be a source of joy as we consider together what he has done on the cross for each of us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your reign. Though we only see glimpses of it now, one day you will physically and fully reign over the entire world. You will be seated on your eternal throne and seen in all of your majesty, power, and holiness. Help us to see you in your glory even now and know that you are the source of all joy, comfort, and salvation. May you reign in our lives even now and more as each day goes by. Give our feeble hearts and minds faith to live this life that you have called us to. For we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.